0: Hi, this is Susanna Bloom, fellow here at the Center for New American Security, and I'm here today with Eric Fanning, former Secretary of the Army, to talk about the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, or the NDAA. Thanks for joining me, Eric.
1: That's good to be here, Susanna.
0: Uh, I want to start off by talking a little bit about the balance of capability, uh, capacity, and readiness uh, in the force that we see in this NDAA. Uh, there's significant increase in the size of the force in terms of number of soldiers and marines, aircraft and ships, but very little uh, investment in advanced capabilities or technology or readiness above what was requested in the president's budget. And so, uh, is this the right balance? And how to kind of how do we think about those trade-offs?
1: Well, first, I'd say that any service secretary is going to be happy getting more and asking for more if it's balanced. Uh, And I don't think that we had gotten the balance right um, up to now. And I'm concerned that this NDAA actually exacerbates some of that imbalance. I I think we hadn't properly uh, resourced the force that we have. And if there's going to be emphasis on growing the force, growing the number of soldiers, Marines, number of ships, number of fighter squadrons, I'm concerned that um, that we won't get enough money for that, the military won't, and it'll further exacerbate that imbalance. I don't see the investment in, in the future modernization, and we already have significant problems with readiness and sustainment, and so I'm afraid those will be thrown out of whack even more. Yeah.
0: And um, and specifically about the additional um, 7,500 active duty soldiers as well as an additional 500 in the Guard, Um, you know, we saw in the USA Today piece that broke earlier this week that the Army was considering issuing some pretty serious waivers for mental health in order to meet their current recruiting goals, much less increased recruiting goals. And then there's the question of how do you keep all those new soldiers equipped with the most modern stuff and, and fully trained and ready to fight?
1: Well, I, I think there are two parts there. One is that the, the Army was stretched pretty thin in many parts of the Army. There are two ways to get at that. One is uh, to increase the size of the Army to help with those rotational deployments, those cycles. The other is maybe to rationalize what you're asking the Army to do. There's generally not an appetite to do that. Uh, the military is asked to do a lot of things. It's, it was always interesting to me when people would say, why do we have to spend in the United States the same amount of money as the next seven, eight, nine, ten. In whatever countries it is combined, I'm like, that's the wrong way to ask the question. What are you asking your military to do? We ask them to do a lot and it's expensive. Um, again, I'm afraid so that the, the 7,500 additional soldiers can help with some of that, that rotational and deployment scheduling, but if we don't have the money to fully resource them, and that has to carry all the way through to installations to sustaining the equipment that they have, to buying the equipment that they need now, but also investing in that modernization in the future, then we're just creating more problems. And As for the waivers, I think there was a little bit of confusion on what was going on, uh, what the Army was trying to do. I think the Army, as the Chief of Staff General Milley said, probably didn't explain it very well. I think there's no hard and fast rule for any um, any of these waivers, and you want to try and, which the army is trying to do, push it out a little bit more, people closer to the situation. You want to have some flexibility in that, but it does point to a problem that the army has when it tries to grow too fast. The army, you know, based on the size of the army, um, what it can recruit and and train each year, and the uh, pool of of applicants nationally who meet the requirements. If you stretch too hard, you will have to start lowering the standards someplace. You you can increase incentives to join. That that sort of maxes out at a certain point. Then you've got to start looking at educational waivers, physical fitness waivers, these types of things. And that's not worked well for the Army in the past when it's been asked to grow too quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, so those are concerns that you still have when we're looking at introducing another 7,500 Soldiers into the force,
1: or I, my, my bigger concern. I, I think the army, the army was meeting. It's it's not um, uh, without without too much difficulty because it was really focused on it. Now, recruiting into the military, the success of recruiting is inversely related to the health of the economy, and we're always looking, you know, it always looks like the economy is going to take off. That makes recruiting a lot harder. I'm always concerned about making sure that we maintain standards uh, and continue to have the strong army that we have today. I'm more concerned about growing the army, 7,500 people, almost all of that in the active component without properly funding it. And I'm skeptical about the amount of money that's in the NDA to fully support this larger force in addition to skepticism based on the last eight years that that money will actually be there in the end. Yeah.
0: So, so by that, you mean that that with those 7,500 additional people, you also need to train them, equip them take care of them
1: yeah and you have to we there are certain places you go in the budget when you're stressed we have really taken down facility sustainment and I had an assistant secretary tell me once that one dollar of maintenance equals three dollars of repairs equals ten dollars of replacement and the longer you put off maintenance it becomes repairs the longer you put off repairs becomes replacement and we have billions of dollars in the army alone in a backlog of facilities maintenance Uh, and then certainly making sure that those soldiers have the equipment they need that it's being properly sustained all while making sure you're thinking about the soldier of the future. And so a future Chief of Staff of the Army, a future Secretary of the Army isn't facing a big hole because we haven't been investing in that longer term modernization and research and development.
0: Exactly. Uh, Speaking of the dollars and cents side of the equation, uh, the NDAA looks at a defense top line of close to $700 billion. You know, appropriations always come in a little bit lower than the authorizers, but I'm wondering if you think, um, you know, is this a realistic figure given everything else that's going on right now in terms of tax reform? The Senate now linking tax reform into changes to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and of course, the ever-present sort of Damocles, the Budget Control Act, the threat of sequestration.
1: Well, I, um, my own experience, you know, for eight the eight years I was in the Pentagon, the last eight years, we never started the fiscal year with a budget. And one of those years, we actually had to shut down. And so I'm generally skeptical, A, about getting the budget when we need it, and B, getting the money that you want. Uh, There are, as you said, a lot of competing pressures, uh, which is why, for example, the last three secretaries of defense just signed out a letter saying they're concerned that any tax reform that isn't revenue neutral will eventually be another competitor to defense spending, to discretionary spending, particularly national security spending. So, I'm, I'm worried that I'm worried that the aspirational goals of how you grow the force will stay, but we won't get the money. If history is any guide, that that is even being discussed in the NDA, which I don't think is enough for that growth.
0: Yeah, I, I'm pretty skeptical myself. I have to say, you know, the current continuing resolution that we're under right now expires on December eighth, and I I don't see how how this circle gets squared in time to actually have a budget deal by then. I think we're looking at a at, at best case. That's certainly not a best case scenario, but a scenario of a really long CR this year.
1: Yeah, and I think we're in these annual budget cycles, and when you grow the military, you have a bill for years to come. And so, if we're going to take defense spending up to that level, there needs to be some sense of security that those numbers will stay into the future because we're buying this force structure. But you're right, the, the CR ends at a certain point, there aren't that many days left on the Hill, they're clearly focused on tax reform, and so I don't think there's a lot of oxygen in the room. To get us over the line on this. Meanwhile, you know the army's starting to grow. They they're adjusting their recruitment process to get more people into the army. Uh, not clear whether we'll have the money once those people come in.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. It's a, a factor that's not often appreciated is is um, the risk that you're taking on board when you increase the size of the force without having a stable, uh, you know, budget top line for this year, let alone next year and the year after. Yeah. Uh, is um, it's a lot. Of, it's risky. A lot of risk in the program when you do that.
1: When you consider. The percentages, as the military, as each of the services reports, you know, army brigade combat teams, fighter squadrons in the air force, ships, submarines in the the navy that aren't ready by military definitions today, it seems to me that should be the priority: getting the force we have up to the level that we want it to yeah. be at.
0: Not only ready, but but fully modernized. You know, investing in the next generation of technology that we need to remain competitive into the future. Uh, speaking of buying advanced technologies and other things, uh, the 18, 2018 NDAA is largely kind of a continuation or refinement of the reforms and acquisitions and business operations that we saw in the previous two NDAA's. Uh, you know, when you and I were in the department, I know that that uh, you know DOD included language and in a couple of statements, of administration policy and things like that that they felt the reforms were a little bit heavy-handed or micromanaging, perhaps. And uh, you know, I wonder what you think of the of the new refinements, particularly in the acquisition space.
1: Well, I start from a premise, as a lot of people do, that a smaller Pentagon is a better Pentagon. And so, um, adding new positions, new offices, senior offices, seems a little counterintuitive to me. And one of the problems we find in the Pentagon is that continuity of responsibility across the life cycle of a program. And so to bifurcate it concerns me a little bit. I, I was very skeptical of the idea of taking ATL and dividing it into two. I do think there is some real value in in a senior official who's in charge of the future, in a sense, you know, the the building for very good, legitimate reasons, skews towards the war of today at the expense of the war of tomorrow. And the people in charge of the war after the next war really don't even get a voice at the table. So I see some value in that. What I think might be missing is The outside world operates differently than it did fifty years ago. And we have these large program of records for things that for which there's no commercial application or or market like an aircraft carrier. But increasingly we are buying technology, products, services um, that are being imagined, innovated, created outside of the department. And so I think um, putting someone thinking about acquisition in terms of traditional programs of record or something that's more commercial in modeling putting someone in charge of that might help us innovate a little bit faster.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting as well, you know, the Congress's intent in kind of separating the research and engineering function from the acquisition function was to in, to heighten the profile of innovation and and research and and as you say not just the next war but the war after next. Uh, you know, and I think they potentially have an, a chance to be successful in achieving that goal. You know, my worry is that in um, in splitting those two functions apart, you risk making an existing problem even worse. And that's you know what's referred to inside the community as the valley of death. How do you bring a program that is promising in the prototype or developmental stages through into a full rate production program that's delivered to the warfighter?
1: And th- there are. Um... You know, we, we are always critical on ourselves about the processes we have, but the military does develop pretty awesome capabilities year after year after year after year. And there's there are tremendous centers of innovation across the Department of Defense already. And what I'd like to see is sort of them maybe brought together or highlighted lessons learned. You know, you have Rapid Capabilities Office in the services, you have the Strategic Capabilities Office, you have laboratories. I was just up at Lincoln Labs early this week doing unbelievably amazing things. And to add another layer or another office in the Pentagon could just continue to complicate the issue rather than help us figure out how to leverage the great work that's already being done.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, on the on the same sort of theme, but regarding business operations, the NDAA uh, also created some new commercial acquisitions authorities for the department to simply buy things directly from online retailers like Amazon instead of going through you know GSA authorities or other contracting mechanisms. Um, what do you think of that? Well, I,
1: in general, I think I think we've moved the risk rheostat too far in the conservative direction. I would like to give more authorities to people. We have, we do actually have good people who are trained well, who have to spend a lot of their time just figuring out how to stay compliant with the rules and processes that are in place. I'd like to free that up a little bit. Now we we need to have some visibility into what's being done so we can hold people accountable uh, and make sure that nothing is going off the rails. But I think it's a good thing, especially in, in this modern day, as as the marketplace is changing, as the internet has changed a lot of how we do business outside the department. To let us leverage that in some ways.
0: Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I think the department needs to keep up with um, trends that have occurred on the outside. You know, we were just talking before we started recording about how the Pentagon still moves physical paper around the building instead of having a you know fully electronic. Kind of records management process, and uh, I think there's a lot we can learn from the outside.
1: Yeah, I I I think you got it exactly right, and that's how I phrase it all the time. We need to do things just to help us keep up with what's going on on the outside. You know, 50 years ago, the department um, and, and again does amazing things. DARPA does amazing things. There's a lot of amazing technology coming out of the Department of Defense, but but there's more even coming out of the private sector than used to be that we could leverage. But we have these systems and processes in place where we can't even keep up with them.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks very much for coming by.
1: Great to be here. Thank you, Susanna.